Welcome to Future Imagined, a Foresight podcast dedicated to future thinking, powered by MGF Insights. I'm Sophie Briarcliffe, leading Foresight for Europe as part of the Mars Wrigley Global Foresight team. Today, we're exploring the shift towards emotional and mental wellness in more depth. We started the conversation on this topic in the season one episode, Inside Out, where this was one of the areas that we touched upon around how wellness has been redefined in the consumer's mind. Today, we brought in an amazing panel to help us dive further into the connection between the mind and body, how our physiology impacts our happiness, what conversations are taking place around mental health, and what it means for the future of wellness. Hi everyone, I'm Manish. I'm part of PepsiCo Global Insights team. I lead a capability that we call 360 Always On. In summary, that's an engine that allows us to listen and predict what our consumers are saying and what their habits might be. My name is Claire Dale. I am director and the founder at Companies in Motion. I'm also a leading exponent of physical intelligence and I'm also an author of the book called Physical Intelligence. Hi everyone, my name is Raj Falcon. I'm a research director at the Institute for the Future. We're a futures research organization based in Palo Alto, California. I look at a variety of futures, but my favorite are really looking at the intersection of health, food, and technology. My name's Sarah Coughlin from the Movember Foundation. I head up our health promotion and influencing team globally. We're largely focused on using media for change. How do we influence men to adopt the health behaviors that will improve their overall health outcomes? And we imagine a future just with that theme in mind of men living happier, healthier, longer lives. So when we're thinking about mind, body and mood, one of the big shifts in the conversation over the last few years has been the recognition that your mental health and your physical health are intrinsically linked. Claire, what are some of the new learnings that we have around the relationship between physical movement, our physiology or even things like touch and mental wellness? Yes, well, the role of movement in health is becoming so much more important I think one of the, the the most important findings lately is that the the amount of sedentary work that we that we do six hours or more a day has a drastic impact on our mortality. You know, we're talking about between eighteen and thirty seven percent increase in mortality risk if you sit still for more than six hours a day. So there's definitely this um, very important link between movement and our health, our mood, and our mental well-being. So some of the stats say that even 10 minutes of movement a day, that will lower your risk of mortality by 16%. Um, I think the touch has been a big issue. You mentioned that. And through the last year, you know, I'm very interested in the chemistry of the technology of the body. And I look at the body and help communicate with people about the body through the lens of some of the key chemicals that impact how we think and feel and speak and behave. 
And one of the key chemicals that is limited when we can't touch each other is uh, oxytocin, which we would normally associate with with women who are giving birth to children and, uh, and nurturing children. But of course, it applies to all of us as we feel that we're socially bonded and that we trust each other. Uh, children can't develop well without oxytocin, without touch. One of the, the things that we have to realise is that we don't only have a brain in our heads, that we have you know, two other very high-functioning brains, actually, one in the heart, one in the gut. So the idea that neurons are only in the head is an absolute fallacy, and we need to put that to bed and forget the idea that our bodies carry around our brains and think of ourselves as we well we are embodied minds so we can't really we can't sustain that mind body split anymore we have to realize that we are fully neural throughout our entire bodies with intensities of neural activity in the gut the heart and the head and those three brains need to be in communication I think it's really interesting that you talk about the gut as a second brain, because actually the other area of physiology which links to the idea of actively managing the balance of chemicals is functional food and how that impacts our brains. So our digestive system produces over 90% of all of our serotonin, which is the happy hormone. So the science tells us that there is a direct link between your gut and your emotional well-being. Manish, do you think that this link is now more widely recognised by the general public as well as people lean into preventative health and immunity wellness? Absolutely. I think if you think about the way we thought of preventive health is in the past, you know, I wanted to be immune, I wanted to be strong because I wanted to perform better. I wanted to compete with others. Over the last year, that human need of progress or performance has changed slowly to security. I want to be immune. I want my family to be strong so we can withstand, you know, the thing that's been happening. And that's a really strong human need. And as a result, people are beginning to search for what could make them more immune. Uh, they're looking at uh, vitamins. They're looking at over-the-counter medications. But another thing that everybody's looking at is, you know, are there natural ingredients that can help you become more immune, right? And a lot of them obviously occur in food. Consumers are also turning to that. They are looking for homegrown solutions, you know, and they are saying, okay, what can we do that will not hurt? So ancient natural ingredients are beginning to trend. Uh, and products are beginning to highlight that in their uh, recipes as well. So even in our portfolio, we've talked about some of the functional benefits you can get from juices and, and Quaker and so on. But products all over the place are beginning to talk about that. Just to add to Claire's point, People are becoming far more knowledgeable about health. And uh, there was a stat from Google Trends I was looking at which said two years ago, a majority of people were looking at what is vegan? What is vegan diet? And now people are not looking at that anymore. They're looking at the best vegan diet or the best vegan protein powder because they moved on. They've understood what the fundamentals are. It's not just about basic wellness. It's about what can I do to help me become more secure? So I think preventive health was a trend. But I think it might become a habit in the future. You're absolutely right that people are starting to be more proactive in that area as it becomes a habit. And I think that brands are also recognising, as you say, that consumers are looking for tangible solutions to empower their own well-being. 73% of people say that brands need to embrace wellness as part of their core strategy. But Sarah, what's effective in this space from a marketing and communication standpoint? 
And how do brands ensure that they have the credibility to play in this area? The Movember campaign's now been running for 18 years. It was a, an idea born in a pub over a couple of beers to have some fun, have a laugh, see what you look like with a moustache because they hadn't come back into fashion. And we added cause and we added, we built a foundation and we're now, you know, the, one of the world's largest men's health charities. I think what we've held on to in that growth is authenticity and, and true, truth in our origins. We, we never talk, you know, we never move away from the fact that we are having fun doing good. And so that resonates in what we do. And we deal with really serious topics. We're dealing with suicide, suicide prevention, mental health, well-being, prostate cancer, testicular cancer. They're areas that have traditionally been laden with quite static and, and quite serious materials. And I guess we've come at things in a way that has appealed to men because it's considered them and its design. We try and be really conscious of our language. Men don't tend to respond to the word help very well. So we don't plaster, you know, we've got the things that will help you everywhere. Um, we're really careful with imagery. We use real images as much as possible to reflect the men that we're serving. And I think that that idea of, you know, understanding the audience is not new. It's not new science, but the data we can now gather about our audiences, the insights we're now privy to and privileged to receive, I think really helps us tailor the answers, give that piece of information in a way that's wrapped up in a consumer, you know, consumer friendly um, package. We recently delivered a campaign with um, influencers for 16 to 19 year old lower SEC boys here in, in England. And we used influencers that I, as a middle years woman, would never have heard of or seen. These are guys who are usually doing silly tricks on skateboards on YouTube, but they really have this connection with their subscribers. And those subscribers are really hard to reach. 16 to 19 year old boys are hard to get to when it comes to health, any kind of health messaging or wellbeing messaging. And the campaign's been tremendously successful because we briefed those uh, influencers to use their own, come up with their own ideas and their own authentic way to present better versions of masculinity and vulnerability with their audience. If we'd given them a scripted sort of a, a tagline or a hashtag they had to use or scripted the campaign, it would have felt jarring for their audience. So it just speaks to everybody knowing the truth of who their brand is and not wanting to stray too far away from that. One of the things that I really love about Movember is that you're connecting with men and boys in places they spend time through activities they enjoy. So by using those influences, you're, you're accessing the conversation and you're accessing those consumers in a place that feels natural to them. There's no doubt that mental health, stress and anxiety are being addressed much more openly today than they were in the past. And charities like Movember have been really instrumental in moving the conversation in that direction. So in the 1940s, Winston Churchill argued for the mass sterilisation of people with mental health challenges, whereas today we're seeing increasing investment from governments for mental health support and it being so much more part of daily conversation. Rod, what trajectory are we on and what continued evolution can we expect in this area? You know, one of the things that I like to think about is the different cohorts and kind of their formative experience when it comes to health and well-being, how they take care of themselves, who their support systems are. And there definitely is a generational effect. We have to remember that, you know, young people are growing up in a very different environment of so many different messages about how to take care of yourself, so many different products, services 
that have some therapeutic value. The American Psychological Association in 2019 was saying 87% of American adults agree that having a mental health disorder is not to be ashamed of. So there clearly is sort of this openness, but then you also see it in everyday life. Um, so for example, in my work environment, you know, we can see everyone's schedules and it's, you see on your colleagues' schedules, therapist appointment or walking with my kid or going outside. These are all reveal a lot about the person's mental health state and how they're taking care of themselves. And it's very open and transparent and there's no judgment there. There's sort of this expanding sort of definition of what is health and well-being. And so in the U.S., you know, for the longest time, we can think about a few generations back, or even some of us today, the way that we defined health and well-being is what our doctor told us. And so what we selected to take care of ourselves was sort of limited to whatever the healthcare industry was offering. But now we're all kind of living in a world where just about everything in our lives could have some therapeutic value. It's often communicated to us in that in those terms. A lot of food, for example. And when I think about you know mental health and being open, there is not just being not just as transparency, but also open to the idea that many other things have therapeutic value. What you've just said really resonates because people have really become very self-reliant. I feel responsibility to help people get more discerning and be able to read their own body. The emphasis on self leads me to think that we all have a responsibility to help give an education that isn't there in universities, isn't there in schools. People don't think of their bodies as the most amazing piece of technology, and yet it is. Lockdown has allowed us to really acknowledge the need to look after our mental well-being. It's kind of accelerated the conversation in that sphere to something that people are actively looking for coping mechanisms to protect their mental well-being and to boost their mood. Manish, which of these consumer behaviours and habits that we've seen created during lockdown to manage wellness do you think will really stick? I mean, I think the focus on health and making yourself and your family stronger will continue to stick. I think there are a few things that people like us have discovered during this lockdown, which we've explored, whether in terms of our mental or physical health, that I think are likely to stick around. So if I look at uh, a lot of focus on you know, plant-based food or trying to really understand how... And plant-based food actually... Uh, a lot of people have said that will also help in their mental wellness. But if you think about it, you know, 10% of consumers in the US, for instance, have tried it, but 80% are aware of it. So I think there's a, there's a big road ahead for consumers to try this. But I wanted to go back to that mental health conversation. I think if there's a silver lining in this pandemic in a perverse sort of way, it is a, it's really shown a light on mental health. And I think, for instance, as we head out of this lockdown from different countries, we are going to see a fair amount of anxiety in our consumers as well. So I think for the next, hopefully short period of time, but probably longer, 
we'll see a lot of focus on consumers' well-being in terms of mental health and what they can do about that. And uh, as organizations, as citizens, I think we'll have to find a way to be able to help those people. I think one positive in that sphere that lockdown has helped us with is it's perhaps legitimised and normalised the conversation to the extent that some people who may not have asked for help previously maybe now feel that they can ask for help. Sarah, Movember has been around for almost two decades now. What changes do you see in the way that people are talking about mental health and those kind of human people-to-people connections? There's already a lot of evidence to say we're hardwired for connection. That idea of the, you know, connection to others is the thing that's probably the greatest predictor of the health and longevity of your life. And so there are many studies that speak to that. I think when we started on this journey, we knew that men weren't opening up and they weren't taking action or seeing taking action as a strength um, when it came to mental health. It was sitting very much in the weakness space, which is a, a big kind of Um, I I guess, barrier for men when we think about some of those masculine norms that sit around how to behave if you're a man. What we've seen in the last two decades is a move, I guess, to a place where it takes strength to, to get that help, to take that action and people acknowledging that in a really broad way. A lot of role modeling of, of famous men stepping forward and saying, I've been through a tough time and I sought help, whether that's a royal family member or celebrities, sports stars. There isn't really any walk of life where someone hasn't stepped forward and said, it's okay not to be okay because I've been there myself. So I think they're all really strong kind of um, indicators of where things are going. And we're definitely seeing men respond. You know, in research we've done through the pandemic with really different types of cohorts of men, the levels of mental health literacy are much higher than they were 10 years ago, people understanding it. I guess the barrier that still exists is we're still seeing men not step forward when they themselves are going through that tough time and putting themselves out there. So we've still got a barrier to cross there. I fully agree. And I think organisations like Movember have really helped drive that conversation. I think there's a little bit of merging now, finally, of physical and mental health, because as people are trying to manage this chaos around them, we are all exhausted, right? We are we are not working from home. We are living at work. And, you know, we are we are really trying to find the energy that we require both physically and mentally to get out of it. So I think a lot of the mental health challenges that we are seeing and that people are recognizing is also because they're trying to seek this energy to get out of that mental exhaustion. And a lot of time that could be through exercise or it could be through food as well. So we're beginning to see a lot of food for good mood solutions come up because people are looking to experiment. So I think this crossover is helping in some ways and helping normalize the conversation. I've been reading lately about how some men, some of the mental health issues, and I think for women as well, I've certainly felt this, have been cooped up in home, went into the city the other day and suddenly felt my muscles and my good old oestrogen sort of kick in. Suddenly my muscles thought, this is what it was like. You know, I'm out there, I'm out in the world. And realising that there was a sort of weakening of them, despite the fact that I run with my dog every day and I do my yoga. But it was it's, it was very different um, feeling the chemical shift that I underwent when I went out into the world. We've been working with a lot of people with movement. So movement itself is a therapeutic balancer of chemistry. So using the body to change our inner state, our emotional state is a real key. And we're, we're starting to make that connection. Um, 
and two other chemicals that have just been really talked about as as we're talking about mood is did you know that there is this chemical called irisin and the scientists call it the hope molecule and the minute that you move a muscle irisin is released and it goes right up right straight into the brain it's a neuropeptide and it says i'm alive there's you know there's there's movement here even the bones now we know release this chemical called osteocalcin which is connected with insulin levels and blood sugar processing and so on but it's just it's very recently been identified as a mood enhancer so even the bones as well as the muscles are neuro are part of the neuroendocrine system so the the plot thickens and and it's clear that we're embodied minds and that we need to be moving for our mental health and what i really love about that conversation through both claire manish and sarah is that all of it goes back to the real fundamentals of human behaviour, whether that be the kind of primal hormonal instincts of movement and how that impacts your mood or listening and vulnerability, connection and feeling that kind of need for safety in order to expose some of that vulnerability and to talk to your tribe. You know, there's so many. We talked about movement, performance, and you're absolutely right, Manish. All of these sort of adjacent concepts to well-being have been a major driver for new food and beverage categories. But there's so many adjacent concepts. Security, you mentioned. And part of this is that, you know, health and well-being, it's such like the ultimate intersectional concept. You know, it's um, at home, on the go, at work, um, with food, with exercise and movement, there are just, you can see health um, and well-being just intersect with so many of the different areas um, of our daily lives. And that's, I think, a big part of what we're seeing. We may be comfortable with sort of the concept extending to performance and exercise, but in the workplace, even concepts like productivity are linked back to health and well-being. Managing your chemistry levels so that you're energetic and can get through the day and finish your work. All of these are kind of concepts and different dimensions of health and well-being as we're learning more and more about health and well-being and being open to this huge health economy communicating to us all these different solutions. You know, um, on the one hand, it could be very positive. On the other hand, it could also add to the burden of figuring out what's going to work for me. So Rod, to that point of this shift towards holistic wellness and it really encompassing all parts of our life, do mm -hmm. you think that we're moving towards really kind of precise solves to help us with our mental well-being in discrete parts of our life? Or do you think it will be, do you think the future will be more about all-encompassing multi-purpose solutions? I think it's all of the above. What Claire's pointing out is really kind of this old technology, our body, and being able to read this literacy, being able to read our bodies. Unfortunately, that's kind of on this broader definition of health, at least here where I'm at. Um, and then the other dimension is, are they framing their choices between just what the healthcare industry offers, or are they looking at this big economy of offerings that are coming from food companies, retailers, entertainment, practitioners that are 
borrowing from Ayurvedic or Chinese medicine or folk medicine that's packaged in new and meaningful ways. But I think in particular in food, there's sort of this tendency to view for very specific health benefits, like this correlates with that. But I think as this is expanding, coming back to uh, mental health and sort of the openness, I also see it just in you know younger generations. I was sharing with you, Sophie, there was a YouGov poll here in the U.S. that found that millennials, 22% say they don't have any friends. And for us, that's just so surprising. It's sort of a signal. Aren't they the most connected generation? Um, and it makes me want to then ask about the younger generations behind them. I think as that generation grows up, my hope is that because we're already seeing other sorts of adjacent concepts as health is moving into all these areas, like meaning and purpose and impact are are really health and mental conversations that are happening in the hiring process. So you might not readily recognize that as a health conversation. It's really part of the hiring process, but that's really what it's about. People are looking for ways to align um, so many different parts of their lives with their definition of health and well-being. And so let's not be surprised where it shows up because it's going to keep showing up in many different arenas. We've spoken a little bit about what the future might hold, but I think there's lots of people in the sphere who are trying things, lots of people who are kind of putting things out there. But I think it'll be really interesting to see you know, which of those things are sticky, which of the things stay around, and which of them are actually really just gimmicks which fade out relatively quickly. What do we think are some of the biggest myths and misconceptions around the mind and body connection? We are waking up to a bunch of problems we didn't know we had, and we want to solve them. We want immunity, we want mental energy. We also want to slow down, we want to de-stress, sleep better. People have realized that enjoyment is not only about big ticket items. For instance, me, I have two daughters. I've been playing board games with them. We've been reading books, mundane stuff, which I wouldn't have told you guys about if we were doing this podcast a year and a half back, right? But I think people have realized that that actually is fun. Historically, the mind-body thing has been a very soft wiring that you'd go to a yoga retreat to do. Really rapidly, that dialogue has changed and we've got this sense that the mind and the body are hardwired and if we don't treat the body right, the mind will really suffer. If we don't treat the mind right, the body will really suffer and the whole human system cannot thrive. Although it's hard to use language that brings the two together because we're so used to talking about our body as like a home where we live, so it's an object rather than something that is fully subjective to us. But it is really totally integrated. And that is why movement is one way to improve mental and emotional health. I think for a long time, mental health's been a diagnosed state in the kind of negative place, but actually we've all got good and bad mental health. In that way that the mind and the body are so totally linked, so is this idea of mental health and the human being. We all have mental health because we have health. The unit of analysis, it's not always just the individual. It's an intervention or a change you need to make in the place and not think about just the individual solutions, but think about multiple scales as we're thinking through these issues. 
One of the things that has really stuck in my mind from this conversation is the fact that people have much more awareness and are being more proactive in the way that they manage the relationship between their mind, body and mood. And in doing so, are looking for tangible solutions to improve their long-term well-being, whether that be through functional diets that incorporate ingredients that deliver mental health benefits or helping consumers to connect with uplifting moments that provide joy in their day-to-day life. People are certainly re-evaluating what makes them feel good and what doesn't. If your business isn't providing brands, products, or even a business culture that supports people's mental well-being, you will lose relevance and you will lose that competitive advantage in a world where consumers are seeking out brands, products, services that do enhance and play to that holistic idea of mental well-being. Until next time, this is Sophie. Stay curious. Stay curious.